several years ago, back when uh, I was in college, Micah was in college at the same time. I'm not going to tell a terrible story about you. Don't worry. You can go ahead and walk out of the room. Um, but Micah and I were, were best friends in college. We hit it off. We've been best friends since. And we had another friend named Seth. And the three of us just did everything together. Like, we were with each other all the time. And with us, we, had, we didn't have, like, one single friend group. We were kind of friends with a bunch of other people. And it had nothing to do with me, really. They were kind of the cool ones, and I got to tag along, so it was great. So I got to be friends with everyone because of them. And over the, the years while we were there, um, it, we got to know people and just kind of hit it off with different people, and it was fun. Well, two years into my college uh, career, starting my junior year, Sarah, my now wife, came to Mercer, and we started dating. And uh, she began to become a little frustrated because whenever she would meet someone, they would say, oh, okay, you're Ryan's girlfriend. I've heard about you. And her identity at Mercer became Ryan's girlfriend. And she was like, what the heck? Like, come on. Because we had already established uh, ourselves there and because I had known different people and they'd heard me talk about Sarah uh, over the years and then now that Sarah was there, they kind of knew me and knew her by association with me. And so what, what became true was that her association with me was an identity cultivating reality. Now, before you start feeling too sorry for her, by the end of my time at Mercer, when I was a little bit older, didn't know as many underclassmen, the tide did begin to change, and I, I became frustrated because every person I met, they're like, oh, you're Sarah's boyfriend. I'm like, okay, that's great. But now it's okay, I've upgraded, and now I'm just Sarah's husband, and I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But the reality is, is her association with me and my association with her later became an identity-cultivating experience for us while we were at Mercer. And I, I say that because tonight we're going to talk about an identity-shaping reality um, tonight. And so we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ruth 3. If you've got the Bible apps, go ahead and turn there. And I would encourage you to kind of go there so we can read along um, as we read it later on. But just kind of tee everything up and catch everyone up if you maybe missed it. We are doing a series titled, We Need a King. And the heartbeat behind this is we're studying the book of Judges in our home teams this year. And in Judges, what we find is this is a time, which, which is repeated multiple times throughout Judges, but a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what you come to find out is all throughout Judges, it's like a downward descent, a downward spiral into darkness, 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 and it's a horrible time. And at Proximity, we've been studying the book of Ruth. And um, the book of Ruth takes place during this time of Judges. Now, we're starting in chapter 3, and so to kind of catch you up on the first two chapters, what's happened is you've got this Israelite family, uh, a man named Elimelech and a woman named Naomi, who uh, are in Israel at the time, and there's a famine on the land. And so they flee Israel and go to Moab, which is a, a land of people who do not trust in the one true God. They are pagan land. And so they flee Israel, go to Moab, but in Moab, tragedy strikes, and Elimelech dies. And then Naomi's left with her two sons, and her two sons take wives, uh, Orpah and Ruth, but then tragedy strikes again, and now uh, her two sons die. 
And so now you've got this widow, Naomi, with her two daughters-in-law in a distant land. And it's, it's a very detrimental situation. Because in this culture, in this patriarchal society, to be widowed and to be without a son and without a father to care for you was to put you at the mercy of the kindness of others. That you were essentially destitute because you could not provide for yourselves. You, need, you were reliant on the kindness of others. And like what we said, is she wasn't even in her homeland. And so this is problematic. And so Naomi hears that the, the famine is over and that uh, the Lord has visited Israel. And so she says, okay, I've got a better chance of survival there. So I'm going to leave and go back to Israel. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, saying, hey, go back, uh, or go back to your parents, go back to your fathers, find rest in husbands. I'm going back to Israel. And through tears, it ends up being that Ruth says, no, I'm clinging to you. And what we said is for Ruth, this is more than just like a commitment to Naomi. This is a commitment to the one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God above all gods, the king above all kings. And so this is a sort of conversion experience for Ruth. And so she clings to Naomi and they return to Israel. And when she gets back, they, they look and they say, oh, is that Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Because Naomi means sweetness. And Mara means bitter. And so what she's saying is, she, she goes on to say, I left Israel full and I came back empty. And so she finds herself in a, in a hopeless situation and she's bitter and she's frustrated and she just feels empty. And it seems hopeless until the next chapter, starting in chapter two, this man named Boaz steps onto the scene. And there's a glimmer of light here. Boaz, it says, is a worthy man. And what you find out is he's a relative of Elimelech, which is Naomi's deceased husband. And this is important because of the context of the culture. Because in this culture, they had what was called the kinsman redeemer. And so like we said, widows, if, if left to themselves, if they didn't have sons, if they didn't have a father's house to go into, that they were in a sense of a hopeless situation. But there was this, this thing set up uh, within the Israelite law that there was a responsibility of the brother of the husband who passed away to marry his brother's wife and to take them in. And then the first son that they have would, be, would bear the name of the deceased brother. It feels weird for our culture, but in this context, this is a way to preserve the name of the brother, to preserve the inheritance that was passed on to the, that husband, and to, um, and to preserve the land. And so they would marry their brother's wife, and then when they had a son, it'd pass on his name, pass on his inheritance, and pass on this land to preserve and redeem that family. And it was a responsibility of the brother. And if the brother did not do it, it was something that was extremely shameful. You can see that in the book of Deuteronomy um, in chapter 25, where it kind of spells out some of that, that it was major shame or disgrace not to fulfill it. Now, if there was not a brother, they would still be able to have a redeemer through someone in their family. It wasn't an obligation, but it was something that could be done. And so when Boaz steps onto the scene, an Israelite reading this text would be like, oh, this is important. Like, this is hope right here, because this is a relative who has the opportunity to redeem. 
And so Ruth, by happenstance, but what we know is not true happenstance, by the providence of God, lands herself in the field of Boaz, trying to glean and provide for her and Naomi, and she stumbles upon Boaz, and what we find in chapter 2 is that Boaz is so gracious and so kind. In a time where where it was not uncommon for women to be assaulted and abused working the fields, he says, hey, stay close to my people because I'm going to protect you. In fact, not, not only just glean what's on the ground, but I'm going to tell my people to leave things for you. And he sends her back, not with uh, enough, but with more than enough. And so we see Boaz offer kindness upon kindness. And, and what we're meant to see in this is that as we look at the kindness of Boaz, what we've said in the past is we're meant to look through Boaz to Jesus. That this is a story that takes place into the larger story of Scripture, into the larger story of the redemption of God, or, or redemption, uh, God's redemption for God's people. And so this is not just a story of romance. This is not just a story of, of someone finding a husband and, and being married. That this is a story of redemption for this family that for Ruth, for Naomi, but this is a story of redemption that's actually for all mankind because it fits within the larger story of redemption because what we've said, not to spoil it, but Boaz will be the redeemer for this family and that he will marry Ruth and they will have children and in his lineage, in his line, will come King David. And then in King David's line will be the king of kings, King Jesus. That God preserved this family and redeemed this family and then through this family brought about the redemption for all mankind. That though the world was in darkness and in rebellion against him, deserving of his wrath, he sent his son Jesus, that God stepped into the story, into the brokenness, took on flesh, became a man, dwelt among us, lived perfectly, and then took the penalty of sin on the cross. And that on the cross he died and he was placed in the tomb, but then in the tomb he arose from the grave on the third day with victory over sin, victory of death, and the promise of redemption for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, they would be redeemed, that their sins would be forgiven, that they would find everlasting life in the true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This story is more than just a romance story. This is a story of redemption for a family, but it's a story that points to the redemption of all of mankind. And to be in the redemptive story of Jesus is an identity-shaping reality. And so tonight, as we read Ruth chapter 3, I want to point out three identity-shaping implications that come from this. Three identity-shaping realities that come from being in the redemptive story of Jesus. So that's where we're going tonight. We're going to read, we'll read kind of a section, and then point out uh, one of these realities, and then read the section and point out the reality in, until we're finished with it. So that's where we're going. We'll start in uh, the first five verses in Ruth chapter 3, and so you can turn there if you haven't already, and read along. It says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? You can underline that. If you underline your Bible, that's a good one to underline. Should I not seek rest for you? Is not Boaz our relative with, those, with whose young woman, women you were? See, his winnowing, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, 
and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So just pausing here for a second, you got Boaz, this potential kinsman redeemer, and Naomi gets excited. She recognizes the, the potential hope here. And so she uh, sends, uh, tell, tells Ruth to go and, and do all these things. She says, hey, he's going to be winnowing barley. That's kind of sifting through the, the barley, the, the good stuff, and then the chaff, the, the hole that can be kind of blown away. And they would do this on a threshing floor, a solid surface that would be a windy area, um, most likely at nighttime for the nightly breeze. And so they'd winnow the barley and they'd pile it all up and then they would sleep next to their pile because it'd be kind of a communal thing. Everyone bring their harvest to this place and you don't want anyone stealing yours. And so they'd lay down and they would sleep next to it. And so it'd be this communal celebration, but in, in certain periods of Israelite history, it was not only a communal ce- celebration, it was a place known for immorality. That in Hosea, we see that uh, this was a place where it was rampant with sexual immorality, rampant with prostitution. It was a dark place in, in, a, in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a, a dangerous place. And so Naomi sends Ruth and says, hey, I want you to go there. And then I want you to see there's this plan of action. It's littered with all these action words. Wash yourself. She's like, clean yourself up. You got a date tonight. She says, anoint yourself. Uh, it's putting on this oils and, and it would create this fragrance that was pleasing and appealing. And, and it would give this uh, picture of, of luxury. She says, put on a cloak, change your clothes. And potentially this is her saying, hey, uh, you're no more in your, war- your mourning clothes for being a widow. Put on new clothes, you're moving forward. And she says, go and you, you look for where he is. Observe where he lays down. Make sure that you're, you know it's his. You don't want to go to some other random person there. And then it says something really weird where it says, uncover his feet and lay next to him. And you're like, what is that? And, and people try to kind of read into that and make this something it's not. Um, they'll try to make this something that was sexual. But that's, there's no real kind of... Uh, there's not really that in the text, I believe, when you look at the context of what's happening. Um, it is different, though. It's a culturally different thing, potentially a proposal custom of ancient times. But she uncovers his feet, says, lay next to him, um, and there's this, this action plan. And I think this is significant because I think what this shows is Naomi, who was embittered and empty and just hopeless, now has a spark of hope at the side of a potential redeemer. There's a hope for potential redemption because hope leads to action. You don't make an active plan when you are in a hopeless position because your hope will shape your actions. Because hope, I think a helpful definition is it's expectation and desire, that it's confidence and it's longing. You need both of them, right? You can't call it hope if there's no desire there. Like if I, can, if I expect something to happen, that doesn't mean I'm hoping for it. Like I expect that I'm gonna keep getting older and older and my body's gonna break down. I don't long for that. Like I don't look forward to that. I don't hope that. And in the same way, I, I, just because you long for something doesn't mean that it's hope. Like 
I long to be the best golfer that's walked this earth. I have no hope that it's gonna happen because I'm terrible at golf and there's no way it's gonna happen. I, I know that it's, there's no confidence there. So hope is expectation and desire, it's longing and it's confidence. And so she's got a hope in a potential redeemer here. And so it leads her to action. And that leads us to our first reality, to be in the redemptive story of Jesus is to go from hopeless to hopeful. Is to go from hopeless to hopeful. To be in the redemptive story of Jesus is to go from hopeless to hopeful. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. That all who are apart from Jesus are hopeless. That Ephesians 2 used some strong language of apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. That to be dead is as hopeless as it can get. There's no life in you. There's no hope to change anything. You are dead in your sins. That you are children of wrath apart from God. That means you are, are those who are deserving of the righteous, just judgment of God apart from Jesus. That you are alienated from God with no hope is the language that Ephesians 2 uses. You're hopeless because of your sin. You're hopeless in your future. You're hopeless in the circumstances that you faced. That the, the most that you have to hope for is in this life. And in this life, there's so much brokenness and pain and suffering. And then ultimately, the thing that faces all of us in this life is death itself. And then after death is the promised judgment of, of righteous judgment pointed out on our sins. Apart from Christ, we are hopeless. But in Jesus, there's an abundance of hope. That in Jesus, Ephesians 2 will say that you go from death to alive in Christ. In Jesus, you go from being children of wrath to objects of mercy, to sons, to daughters of the true king. That you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, that you've been forgiven of your sins. Peter will tell us that we have a living hope. In Romans, Paul will say that all things are working for the good of those who've been called according to the purposes of God. That any circumstance we face, every moment and every circumstance, any painful circumstance, any scary circumstance, all circumstances are being worked for our good, is the hope that we have in Jesus. And, and what John tells us is, though we may die, we face death, yet shall we live. That we have hope for resurrection and hope to dwell with our King forever and ever in a, in a hope that we see in Revelation for a day with no more pain, no more suffering, a day where our King will wipe the tears from our eyes. In Christ, we have an abundance of hope. But, but here's the thing that we're prone to do. We're prone to live as if though we are hopeless. That even though we've trusted Jesus for salvation, even though we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit and we have this living hope, we think and speak and act as if we're hopeless. As if that's not our reality. And, and hopelessness can leave us to being dejected and, and discouraged that we have an idea of how the, our plan should look and how our life should look and what should happen. And then when that doesn't happen, we experience unreal discouragement and, and we're dejected by it. 
Um, because this is the only thing we can see is our plan. We act as if we have no hope. Uh, uh, hopelessness can lead us to, to a lack of passion. It can lead us to, to be depressed and, and not even want to get up in the morning and, and to be lethargic and, and to not, not have a purpose. But the reality is in Christ we have a purpose, a purpose that's, that's eternal, a purpose that goes greater than any purpose um, that there could be. That without hope, we can be left to, to anxiety and, and fear of, of we, we get stressed and, and worry about what's going to happen, but the reality is we have a hope that God is working all things for our good and that, that there's not a day or moment that goes by that he doesn't pass through his courts and that is getting bent and used for our good. See, we live as if we're hopeless but in Christ, we have an abundance of hope. And when we're in step with that and remembering that and have a proper perspective, what it does is it leads us to passion. It leads us to think hopeful thoughts. It leads us to see our reality as is. This is not a call to, to disconnect from our reality and make it seem like it's better than what it is. I'm not trying to minimize our pain and circumstances. What I'm trying to do is maximize your God. That Everything we face is being bent towards his will and for our good, and so we can rest in that, that in our pain, we know that we are not hopeless, that though it hurts, we know that there is a day that is coming that it won't hurt anymore, and we know that even the pain he's using for his glory and for our good. See, what I'm, what I'm hoping we see is that we're in a bigger story, and we have so, so, so much hope. Continuing on in the story, in verse 6, uh, it says this, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first kindness, that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So we, we get to, to the action plan, and it says that Ruth she listens to her mother-in-law. She follows in obedience. She submits to her wisdom. And she waits, and she finds where he is, waits till he's full and satisfies, watches where he lays down. She goes, she uncovers his feet, which is weird, but she does it, lays at his feet, and then I love it says, behold, he startled a woman's there. And you got to think, he's like, he's full, he's tired in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden he feels cold on his feet, and he's like, what in the world? And he sees a woman there, and he's kind of startled. He's like, who are you? And so he asks her who she is, and she says, I am Ruth. I am your servant. And then he, 
he, she asks him, she makes her proposal to him, spread your wings, or some will say, spread your garment over me. Now what's cool is this is language used in Ezekiel to paint the picture of a promise for marriage. But what's also cool is this is the same phrase that Boaz uses in chapter 2 when Ruth is there with him. He says, hey, you have taken shelter in the wings of the Lord. And so he makes that proclamation and now he has an opportunity to become those wings that the Lord is using to cover Ruth. And so she said, spread your wings, spread your garment over me because you are a redeemer. Now it says a redeemer because there is another, which is what we'll see in the final chapter, that there's another person who could potentially redeem her. But what he does, he affirms her kindness and says, this kindness is greater than the last. See, what he's talking about the last kindness is the fact that she traveled to a distant land, that she committed herself to Naomi. She took care of her when she did not have to. And now he's like, listen, you're not only taking care of her in, in working and trying to provide, you're taking care of her because you could have any man you want. You're young, you're beautiful. He's probably a little bit older than her, and yet he, she is going to him to take refuge because she knows that him taking refuge, or her taking refuge in him means that Naomi would be cared for. And, and Boaz is impressed by her kindness and her loyalty, and he answers the, the plea and the prayer, and he says, I will redeem you. He says, listen, I'm, we got to see if this other guy will do it, and if he will do it, that's great. But if he doesn't, know this, I will redeem you. And so he promises this, and, and then I, I want you to really see and feel the tremendous insecurity of the situation, though. Like, don't just gloss over this. That this is a time when in broad daylight, Boaz feels the need to say, hey, stay close to my people so you don't get assaulted. Like, in broad daylight, that's the kind of wickedness that's happening. And now here, you've got this uh, foreign woman alone in the middle of night in a place that was known for immorality. And so she's in danger in this moment. And then even when she goes to Boaz, there's a level of insecurity there because you don't know what he's going to do. Like, he's been good so far. He's proven himself to be pretty righteous. But what if that's just a show? And he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees this woman, and he ends up abusing her. Or on the other end of the spectrum, because he's righteous, maybe he takes it to the other extreme and takes her actions as an advance and says, no, 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 I'm not like that, and scolds her and rebukes her and sends her away because he's a righteous man. Like, you don't know what's going to happen here. There's a tension here. But it's not just insecurity for the moment. Like, this is an ultimate insecurity for her and Naomi, that they don't know where their next meal is going to come from, that they're dependent on the kindness of others in a time when people aren't kind. And so there's tremendous insecurity. But all that insecurity gets put to rest with the response of Boaz, do not fear, I will do what you ask. I am going to redeem you. That in this moment, he says, no, no, I'm not going to assault you. I'm not going to send you away. I'm going to redeem you. In fact, stay here because I don't need you going off by yourself. I don't, it's dangerous out here. And he protects her in this moment. But it's redemption and it's security uh, that's ultimate as well. That no longer does her and Naomi have to wonder where their next meal is coming from. No longer do they have to worry about provision. He's going to protect them and going to provide for them. And so that brings us to our second reality. To be in the redemptive story of Jesus 
is to go from insecure to secure. It's to go from insecure to secure. See, apart from Jesus, there's insecurity. Apart from Jesus, the only security you have is the security that you can bring on a situation, the things that fall under your control. You're reliant on yourself for stability, and the thing that you realize as you continue to live this life on this earth is that there are a few things that are actually in your control. Like, you can work out and take care of your body all you want, but you've seen healthy people get sick. Like, you can work hard in school and work hard at your job, but you've seen people unexpectedly lose their job. You can do all these things and and have life taken from you in just a moment. Because what you find is life is oh so fragile. And so the only security you have apart from Christ is really a false sense of security because like we said, all you have is this life is what this life has to offer and this life is fragile, there's pain, there's there's suffering and then ultimately this life ends in death. Nothing is for sure except for that reality. But in Christ, you have ultimate security. In Christ, what Jesus promises and and tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, he says, hey, don't be anxious about your life, about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Don't be anxious about your body and and what you're going to wear, because is not uh, life more than these things? Look at the sparrows. They don't, they don't harvest and gather up, yet your Father uh, provides for them. And aren't you more valuable than the sparrows? He said, hey, don't stress about these things because your sovereign, crea- sovereign creator is a personal God who loves you. This is the same God that's working for your good. This is, there's got a lot of overlap with this truth as in the first one um, that these are, this is a part of the hope that we have, but I think it's worth mentioning that he's working all things for our good, that in Christ, what it promises in 1 Peter is that we have a rich inheritance that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is imperishable, that is kept for us, that the promise of Christ and the rich inheritance that is kept for us is something that cannot be touched by anything in this life, that in this life, so many things are uncertain and unsure and and so many things fade away and and we can't really hold tight to them, but our inheritance is secure and guarded. That in Ephesians, it talks about this inheritance is, is promised and, and can be shored through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit serves as a guarantee, like a down payment on this future inheritance. And that the love of God, like we read earlier in Romans 8, is something that cannot be taken from us that you are secure in the hand of God, that there is nothing of persecution or distress or nakedness or danger or sword or or life or death or angels or things to come or things present or anything in creation that can take you from the love of God that is yours through Christ Jesus. You are secure because of Jesus. So in him we find great, great security. We find great, great security. We often, though, we live as if this is not our reality, right? So often in life, we go through life with great insecurity. I, I remember a story that Sarah was telling me back um, a few years ago when she was a foster care worker. Um, there was a little boy who, I think he was like three or four, um, 
who had come from a family of great food insecurity. I mean, he didn't know where his next meal was going to come from and if it would happen and, and what it was going to be. Um, and through a circumstances, he ended up in foster care. And in this foster family, they loved him. Oh, they loved him. And they had the means to provide for him. So that meant that his food insecurity was no more. That he didn't have to wonder if he was going to get a next meal. He didn't have to wonder what it would be. He was always going to have that security. But the sad thing that happened is what they found is this little boy at night or in different opportunities would go into the kitchen and raid the fridge and raid the pantry and start like hoarding, hoarding food and hiding it um, for himself and, and eating it. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was a huge deal because this, this little boy had uh, food allergies. And so he's going in there and breaking in and stealing this food and hiding it, hoarding it for himself. But the reality is this is actually detrimental to him and it could hurt him or even worse. And it's so sad because you want to take this little boy and say, I know that was what you once were, is that this was the life you once lived, but this is not your reality anymore. You've got loving parents who are going to provide for you, who are going to care for you. You do not have to live in this insecurity anymore. You are secure. I think a lot of us can be a lot like that little boy, where in Christ, we have the love, the approval, the forgiveness of Jesus secured, that can't be taken from us, yet we live as though it's insecure, as though we might lose it, or that we need it from somewhere else. I've got to, to do whatever it takes to, to do well in school, even if it means cheat, even if it means sacrifice things that don't need to be sacrificed, because I've got to have this for my provision. I've got to be in control of this. Or I do whatever it takes to impress others, to get them to like me, to, to have their approval. Or I have to kind of hide the things that I've done and keep them back and not reveal them because I, I can't let any, anyone or anybody see this sin. In Christ, you're secure. In Christ, your provision is secure. In Christ, the approval of God is secure. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. In Christ, your forgiveness is, is secure. You don't have to hide sin. You confess it boldly, knowing that it's forgiven and paid for by the blood of Jesus. You have security in Jesus. You have a beautiful Redeemer who's redeeming every single moment for your good. Nothing is outside of the scope of his sovereignty. Rest in that love. Let's finish the passage in 14 through the end of the chapter. It says this. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Underline that if you, if you underline things, underline that. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Underline that as well. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. So 
to protect her from harm physically and, and protect their reputations. He says he sends her away before it gets too bright. People could recognize her. And, and before she goes away, he says, come, let me give you this barley. And people have said it could be up to 90 to 100 pounds of barley. It's, it's an excess, an abundance. And he, he sends her back. And what you find is when Naomi sees her, he's like, hey, how, how did it fare? How did it go? And she tells her, and she says, look at all this, this barley. He did not want me to go away empty-handed. That this was a sign of his promise. Like, listen, I'm not just brushing you off. Like, I'm a man of my word. I'm going to do what I say. And as, as a, a sign of my promise and commitment to you, I'm going to provide for you in excess. And I want you to take this to your mother-in-law so you don't go away empty. Which, if you remember, what did Naomi say when she came back? She said, I went away full, but now I'm empty. And here, this hopeful redeemer has brought back our... our has sent Ruth back an abundance of provision and saying, hey, I don't want you to be empty anymore. That there's a promise of redemption, a promise of, of provision here. She returns with abundance. And so this is about to be a place of rest for Ruth and Naomi. You, you notice early on, she, Naomi told her daughters-in-law, go find rest in husbands. And then in the beginning of this chapter, what she says, she says, I want you to go find rest in Boaz. And now Boaz has sent her back and, and committed to not just Ruth, but to Naomi. And now Boaz is going to be the place of rest for both of them. A place of provision, a place of rest, a place of abundance. No more worry or toiling or striving, wondering about your provision. You are secured in me. In me, you will be fulfilled. In me, you're going to find joy. In me, you'll find rest. And that brings us to our third and final truth. To be in the redemptive story of Jesus is to go from empty to abundant. To go from empty to abundant. Apart from Christ, there's emptiness. There's longing there's a, a deep void and thirst within that you seek to try to fill. You try all these different things, but you find very quickly that it is not ever satisfied. That there's a longing within you, that there's a restlessness within you. But in Christ, there's fullness. There's abundance. There's satisfaction. What it tells us in Philippians that there's peace that surpasses all understanding. What it tells us in 1 Peter is that there's inexpressible joy that once we thirst, but now what Jesus promises in John is that if we drink of his water, his living water, we will never thirst again. That in him we find contentment and in him we find true and ultimate rest. Some of you in here are followers of Jesus, but if you're honest with yourself, you've got this kind of restlessness within you, a feeling of discontentment, a little bit of a thirst. And what happens is though we have Christ, the source of all joy and contentment and peace, we still try to look to other things to fill us. That we look to a relationship to satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts, or we look to success to bring us security and bring us peace. We look to all these different things when 
our reality is, is that we are satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. And so my, my plea with you is to, to stop looking for your GPA or your job or your success to bring you peace, because it won't. Stop looking to your hobbies or to your friends or your boyfriend, your girlfriend to bring you peace or to bring you joy because they won't. Fullness only comes through Christ alone. That only in Him will we find true rest. And once we rest in Him and live according to His design, then and only then can we enjoy these other good things. That if I'm looking to Sarah to be my contentment and my peace and be my ultimate source of joy, she will disappoint me and I will crush her under the weight of my, my longings and my desires. But if I am satisfied by Christ and resting in him and living in his design, only then can I enjoy Sarah as the good and precious gift from God that she is. See, we find our rest in him and then everything else becomes sweeter. Christians are the only ones who can truly enjoy the gifts and the things of this world for what they truly are. And so we rest in him and are fulfilled at only in him. And so just wrapping up as we close, I want to read us a verse in Isaiah uh, chapter 43. And this is God speaking to Israel. He, hear him say this. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Those words are true for the follower of Jesus, that we can see it as being spoken to us. Thus says the Lord who created you, who formed you. Fear not, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. And so when we feel our hearts prone to wander to these other things, to find our help elsewhere, to find our security elsewhere, to try to be filled in other things, we need to remember this promise. And I think a good way to remember this is to ask ourselves that question that Naomi asked Ruth when she came back. Remember what she asked? She said, how did, I, how did you fare? That more literally translated is this, and it's so cool. Who are you, my daughter? Who are you? It's an identity question. And Ruth's response, look at it. She told her all that the man had done for her. Who are you, my daughter? And what's Ruth do? She points to her Redeemer and his promises and what he had done. That's a question that we need to be good about asking ourselves or hearing asked of us, who are you? And when we hear the question, we must then point to our Redeemer and what has been done for us. That our Redeemer has said, I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. That is your identity and that is your reality. You are not hopeless. You are filled with hope. You are not insecure you are secure in me and in my love. You are not empty. You have my abundance in you. Rest in that reality. 